0: Welcome to Generous Impact. This is Brett Brummett.
1: And this is Amanda Brummett. We are joined today by Eric Paulus, Operations Director and Land Manager for Ecology Action here in Austin, Texas. In this episode, you'll hear how they took a former landfill and turned it into an amazing nature preserve. Brett and I have hiked it and it's gorgeous, not to mention all the good they are doing for animals and plants. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being here with us if you could start by just telling us about your background. Who are you personally and professionally?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. My name is Eric Paulus. I live in Austin, Texas. I grew up in, was born in the District of Columbia and grew up in there and in Maryland and moved to Austin in 2000 and got involved with various forms of activism at that point, including environmental activism. And so now i manage the Circle Acres Nature Reserve and Director of Ecology Action of Texas, and I live here with my spouse and nine-year-old son.
0: So you're, from the journey as I was reading up, I was extremely interested in some of that background, probably in that environmental activism through the Rhizome Collective to now. What what has that been like from that collective, and what really was that that has now led you to the current work with Circle Acres?
2: Yeah, so the Rhizome Collective was sort of like a collaborative collective of collectives of different environmental and activist groups back in the early 2000s so basically somebody had inherited some money and was able to buy a warehouse in east austin and kind of used it as like a organizing hub for various activist groups so it became a space for groups like food and upm's that I was a part of and austin indie media that was a part of there was community powered radio Inside Books Project, Bikes Across Borders, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a few other groups. So it's like kind of like a a space to come together, uh, work on different projects, work collectively to sort of try to change the trajectory of society towards more sustainable and better equity. and And so that was kind of when I first moved to Austin. I think I got involved with that like in the first week or so. Oh,
0: quick entry, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that space just kind of grew and grew for many years. Eventually, some of the folks that were running the nonprofit side of that applied for a brownfield remediation grant. We had wanted to clean up a pallet dump that was right next to the the rhizome property. But the city directed them towards an even bigger problem, which was the the Grove landfill, which is where Circle Acres is now today. So the the... Grant was received. It was an EPA brownfield remediation grant. I think we started back in 2005. So the, the history of that site is it was a former aggregate mine, and then it became a, a municipal dump. So the city of Austin was actually renting the property from the Grove family at the time, and also at a time when that wasn't even part of Austin. It was still parts of Montopolis were still a separate city at that time. And so the city sort of took advantage of the poverty of the neighborhood and were trucking in trash into the into the former aggregate mine and just burning trash. And I, th- I believe they abandoned it in 1970 because it became illegal under the Clean, Clean Air Act. But we're not really sure why. They just kind of abruptly left. And the community knew that as the landfill and continued to use it as a landfill for about 30 years. In fact, when I remember in 2005 when we were starting, people were still showing up with truckloads of like mattresses and stuff to try to dump. And it's even happened like maybe two years ago. I had somebody trying to dump mattresses on that property. I
0: remember coming here with my dad. This is where this goes.
2: <laughs> I've actually met several people who've told me that exact thing. Like I used to come here and dump when we were little. And-
1: okay, can I pause and ask two follow up questions? One, can you define brownfield? And two. For those of us that live here in Austin, where should people be taking stuff to dump them so they don't bring them to Circle Acres?
2: Yeah, so I'm not sure what the technical definition of brownfield is. I think it's like a, a place that's contaminated, usually formerly industrial spot that's contaminated. So there's known hazardous chemicals at Circle Acres, and people should take their trash to Proper landfills or recycling, that's actually what a lot of the initial cleanup was. We cleaned up over 100 tons of material from the site, and a lot of that went ended up going to a proper landfill. I think we recycled over 30 tons of metals that were dumped there and kind of helped use that to to fund the project going forward. Lots and lots of plastics and stuff like that. A lot of it was fairly degraded, but a lot of it was just taking dumpsters to a a proper landfill that had, you know, lining and a proper cap. Uh, but the site is also, like, it wasn't just illegally dumped stuff. It was, we're at the, we're, the aggregate mine was at the bottom of a 900-acre watershed, so urban watershed. So all the plastics and styrofoams and stuff would wash into what we, we call the Montopolis wetland, which is the wetland that was created from the aggregate mine. And so a lot of trash was simply cleaning Three four decades of stuff that had washed in, and it still comes in in every storm. Like we just had a, a big rain event last night, and you can see lots of stuff. All the all the lighter trash, like all the styrofoam and the plastic bottles that are closed, all washed in from you know who who knows how many miles away.
0: So going from there, that was the original like cleanup grant. How did that? Then evolve into a full blown the Circle Acres piece. Is that just a natural transition, or was there a gap in time?
2: Yeah, there was a gap in time. So, I guess the Rhizome Collective kind of didn't really have a clear vision for the site. Like the idea was to make make it basically what it is today, like a, a community asset, a nature preserve. But there was some I- ideas to do like farming down there and composting, which. Neither of them really are appropriate use of a former landfill, in my opinion. But pretty much what happened was is as I understand it is that we the Rhizome Collective sought to build a compost toilet on site and had worked with the city of Austin, like engineers, watershed for about four years. And we received what is thought to be the first municipally approved compost toilet in the country. And obviously a big achievement. Took many, many years. And as I as as it has been told to me, I think it was Newsweek did an article about it, and somebody from the city realized we had a sewage permit, but we didn't have a building permit, and came to uh, give us a citation, probably in retaliation for political activism that was going on at the time, and ended up going to the Rhizome warehouse and giving us like forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 in code violations, which ended up causing the, the folks that owned it having to sell and the dissolution of of the warehouse and all that. So a lot of folks that were part of Rhizome were also part of Ecology Action, which was solely a recycling center at the time. So Ecology Action um, ended up buying the property from Rhizome in the hopes that Rhizome could use the money to buy a new warehouse, which I don't think ever came to fruition. So that's how Ecology Action ended up getting ownership of the property. And at first it was uh, they did piloting. They piloted a compost project for the city of Austin. So you know how folks... Today, like all the businesses have their composts. Mm-hmm. So College Action was the one that helped start that and and turn that into a city program, which we also did with municipal recycling a few decades prior to that. So kind of just set as a side project and College Action like slowly worked on it here and there as they could. But the main operations was the recycling center. I should go back to and just mention that I was part of the Rhizome Collective like cleanup in 2005, six and seven. But then I, I left left Austin for a little while and came back and I was in doing farming and stuff. So I wasn't really involved at at the site. But I guess in 2015, the recycling business had changed to such a degree that the the profitability was not there to sustain a center, like an independent center, and also a lot of disillusionment in what what the recycling industry had become, which is mostly pretend recycling. Um so The collective that was running the ecology action at the time opted to basically get out of the recycling business and was also spurred by the the owner of the property raising the rent. They were going to build a skyscraper there or something, and it's still a still a parking lot today, like eight years later. But so what happened is basically transitioned and the the few folks that were left wrote a small grant to to do some environmental work at Ecology Action and ended up leaving the organization. So there was nobody really heading up Ecology Action. But lo and behold, we got the grant. So knowing my history of like plants and ecology and with the site, they reached out to me to kind of just help run the grant and take take over the space for like 10 hours a week. So I kind of started there and just kind of became aware of like what a unique ecological treasure Circle Acres is and also Guerrero Park and just really focused on building out what we could there and in the park through project grants. So most of what we do is project-based grants. And that's kind of just one thing's led to another to where we are today.
0: And was there said when you went away for a little while? Is that when you were in India studying some of the reforestation, or was that before you came to Austin?
2: So I went to I went to Italy for a while and came back to Austin. And so, at that point, I was, that was kind of, I think when I was in Italy is when the rhizome collective sort of dissolved mm-hmm. um, with all that. And so, when I came back, you know, I was just living in Austin, working. I was sort of tangentially involved with Circle Acres, just kind of visiting. I think I provided plants and stuff for folks at the time. But then I ended up going to Massachusetts for two years. My my spouse was in grad school. And then from there, we went to India after that before we ended up coming back to Austin. Somewhat regrettably, regretting leaving India. Quite a journey around to get back here. Yeah. Uh, I call Austin a block. Never escape its orbit.
1: Oh, yeah. Th- that happened to us. We were supposed to be here for six months to a year, and that was almost four years ago. I think we've become Austinites. <laughs> so... We've seen the project. We've hiked it. It's gorgeous. It's hard to describe to other people how you took this landfill and turned it into a beautiful place to, to hike and be in your community. But it's also not just to be pretty and to be enjoyed by humans. You guys have done a ton of work on the wildlife and with the plants there. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
2: Yeah, I guess my philosophy, I feel like there's enough human-centric things in the city. And so that was kind of a big Big thing at first is folks wanted to do farming and stuff like that. But to me, like I said earlier, like it's it is really a unique ecological treasure being so close to the river and seven, eight hundred acres of green space around the preserve. So I, I really wanted to focus on like managing the site for the benefit of wildlife first. And you know, we could add things for per people second. So that's why we don't do big events there. Like we're constantly approached about doing events but those can have like a lasting unintended impact even just like one you know one music event or something you know you're gonna you know things like herons and stuff might not come back for months from an event like that so there's there's things that people do that unintentionally like can cause wildlife to find a better safer place to go so trying to be really mindful of that and then my my history as a farmer like to me it all comes down to how we take care of the soil so i've really focused on building soil and through that building fertility and and through that building or increasing biodiversity
1: incredible well it's also educational for me i'm fairly ignorant about that and so had you not explained it that way i would have been like wait what why isn't it for the people but that that's brilliant and i feel like educating people on that's really important because yeah I'd, i wouldn't want anything to make the herons go away they're part of what makes your place. Yeah, special. and there's simple
2: things too I do that probably people don't understand, like leaving a certain branch in the way or dangling low. So it forces people to slow down and not speed through this, the place. Like somehow we got on on some circuit of like bike racers that would come through. And so, you know, just, just making it a little bit like intentionally slowing people down, basically. Yeah. Forcing them to yeah. observe what's around them.
1: Yeah. Exactly. That perfectly cues up my next question, which is literally what kind of roadblocks has your project overcome rather than roadblocks for bikers and walkers?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I guess since about about 2016, maybe 2017, I started getting lots of volunteer groups like UT students, like 20, 30 people at a time, which is too many to handle in terms of doing like tree planting or other restoration projects but it's really good for picking up trash. And so seeing how every storm event we'd have like this enormous inflow of trash through the Creek just started working our way up the watershed and finding that Guerrero park was also incredibly trashed from historical dumping and decades of camp encampments and stuff where lots of trash was left. So started working on cleaning up lots and lots of trash. I think since, Two thousand and seventeen were about two thousand bags of trash, dozens of mattresses, more tires, and that's just from Guerrero Park, which is you know maybe a half mile stretch of creek up up upstream from us. and then doing that, and like immediately after we cleaned it up, the city parks and Rec gave like this secret permission to a bike race group to put a bike race track in like this pristine part of the park. You know, not not recognizing all the work we did, and it was extremely frustrating because the community had battled with the parks department only a few years prior to keep this part of the park more of a nature preserve. For instance, there's 800 year old trees there, there's springs, and I guess because of the turnover in the parks department, like no one seemed to be aware of of what was there, and no one visited before giving permission. So this group had literally chopped off tree limbs off of 800 year old trees, 600 year old trees and done a lot of damage. So sort of trying to get, get this, we got the community involved and had them, the parks department come before the Montopolis neighborhood association and found out that basically the, someone in parks and rec had lied about getting approval from the neighborhood association. So we were able to put a halt to that project and sort of continue on doing the cleanups. And it was all part of like a, a trail, a broader trail project. And I've been working on to sort of ensure that this area, this riparian zone became more of a preserve because it is so unique in the city. And so working with ACC, the biology department, we started doing biodiversity monitoring back in 2016. And I, I can confidently say we have the data to show that we are, it is the most biodiverse riparian corridor in the city. I think we're close to three thousand different species. Which, when we started, we were thinking three hundred. So it's like it's it's pretty remarkable. It's, it's definitely surpassing anything I thought, even understanding how special it was at the time. From there, we we ended up getting a grant to do to like do the trail inputs and stuff. So the biggest roadblock I would say is the bureaucracy, and it's just like one thing after another. For instance, like we got this grant and was supposed to have kiosks and stuff to explain to people that it's a trail and like getting, getting the project done and then not being allowed to put it in signage because it doesn't adhere to a signage standard that doesn't exist yet. Literally that kind of, that kind of bureaucratic silliness. And so then we've come to find out like one small kiosk costs $30,000. Proved kiosk costs $30,000 when we're making them for $300. So that kind of stuff has been really, really frustrating, but that's all been on parkland so we've we've done circle acres is like fourteen acres, and we've done restoration work in about sixty acres and we're we're just starting another roughly sixty acre project in the park, so most of the roadblocks have really just been from that we've also had issues with developers there's sort of like this wild west mentality with developers in Montopolis where they can get away with a lot of things that they can't in other parts of town like clear-cutting forests that are like we've had one neighbor chopped out a bunch of trees that were definitely heritage size and videotaped the whole thing sent it to the city and nothing ever became of it we had another one do bore testing and destroy our main spring the city said they were going to file charges and i don't think that ever happened i think they just flipped it to a new llc that they own and somehow they get a slate gets wiped clean Another issue we've had is somebody bulldozed a house and literally dumped it into the creek. And it's been there for five years. And Watershed and County are fighting over who to pay for it. So it just slowly washes into Circle Acres. You know, every rain event, like another, you know, pieces of shingles and fiberglass continue to wash in. So those are really the big challenges are city ineptitude. Which is why it's so nice to actually have ownership of the property. Like I think about back in 2005 when we started, like literally huge dump site that the city wanted nothing to do with. We started at such a bad place and we had Guerrero Park right next door, which was a pretty much a new park and in pristine condition. And how the management styles have over time, like we have this amazing preserve and Guerrero Park is just continuing to degrade year after year because of bad management. And so it's been that's been a really interesting facet to me just to watch how the ecology slowly changes and simple things like, you know, mowing or how to mow or when to mow can really change the plant communities over time.
0: Do, do you find that because of its kind of historical outskirts? I mean, it's not outskirts anymore, but it's just an area that goes unvisited enough by those in rulemaking.
2: I'm not sure I would characterize it that way. We do have like, We'd, we've we been careful not to like promote the site very much as like an attraction, <laughs> but keep it more as like a benefit to the the community in Montopolis. I mean, obviously, I feel like particularly like since 2020, like people have found the preserve more and more. But I don't think it's because the city's not interested. I think it's because the, the people in the city don't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, it Take, takes all ways to get there, right? So
0: with everything you've done and starting and kind of roadblocks and going back again, how do you measure the overall impact of your work?
2: Yeah, that's probably something else that makes us a little different is I don't really focus on that too much. Like I pretty much a one person show in terms of being employed to do this. But I mean, obviously we have thousands of volunteers over the years, but I think, it's kind of a place that speaks for itself and you have to really visit to, to understand. So I don't focus too much on that. I mean, I'll try to track the number of trash bags and trees planted each year, but it's really not that important to me. I think that's like, it would take an enormous amount of effort just to do that. And I don't want to mean that I want to be, you know, getting my hands dirty.
0: Well, how, to to keep doing that moving forward, you mentioned grants over and over. Is that your main source of funding, or how do you how do you go about supporting the
2: organization financially? Yeah, that's the perpetual challenge. But yeah, it's basically been project based grants. So doing trails, tree plantings, restoration work, and so just been trying to to bring enough of that together to make it work. I mean, for many years I had two other jobs, so I've only been full time like the last two or three years, I think. Trying to develop programs, it's, it's difficult when you don't have a programmatic track record and you don't look like other nonprofits that have, you know, like most nonprofits have more people working on just development than we have working on everything. So it's been challenging in that sense. But at the same time, it's keeps us keeps me working on project-based stuff, which is like how the site develops, I guess, and becomes brings more people in to like appreciate the site to help protect it more i'm speaking more of like the park like i i feel like guerrero park is and it's pretty pretty um, integrated to the land i mean yeah it's it's a very unique i mean it's got a mile and a half of river frontage it's two creeks on each side it's next to like a huge golf course with many many heritage trees and then and there's also a protected preserve right across the river so it's you know, thinking 50 years down the line, this is going to be such an important part of the city. And just to see how badly it was being managed. And I mean, huge gullies have formed in the park just from, you know, water mismanagement alone. And uh, you could see like lots of soils eroding from from other harebrained schemes that have happened there. So I really try to try to bring people in to experience the the nature there. And then that's how people get to know it and love it. and Eventually, fight to protect it. We did have a, an instance where our council member at the time was lobbying to get the MLS stadium put right in the park, which was would never feasibly happen just because the soil's there. But like the cities spend money trying to make that happen, you know, give give our parkland away to private interests like that. And so, having more people that visit and love the park adds more voices to help protect it in the future.
0: What you you mentioned partnership with ACC. What are What is that target group that you want to come visit the park, and, and what do you want them to take away?
2: I mean, as many people as possible. I, one thing I really like is that there's a lot of age, age gaps of people that come. Like, we have a lot of older folks that that hike through, and we do some programming with kids in the neighborhood. And I think that's really what it's about. I mean, it's bringing, bringing all kinds of people together to to experience the place and and that's what I like really like about the volunteer events is because it's always always new people coming and helping lend a hand to improve the environment.
1: And when you're doing that education that you've talked about, then people aren't coming back to dump things or trying to hold a music festival on your land because you you've taught them and they understand. Yeah.
2: And I, I think it's also like people probably get tired of me complaining about parks and wreck and stuff. But I think it's also very important to explain to people that you know, our, we think of our green spaces as carbon sinks, but they're so poorly mismanaged. I don't think that's true, and that's something we have to work on as a community: is how do we make these spaces really work in our benefit in terms of providing spaces for wildlife, but also carbon sinks? I think Carrero Park is a great example. Like it has deep soils; they are very erosive, and its history as a I mean, it was cattle cattle land, ranches, and Hay pastures for many decades, and so it's I wouldn't call it a blank slate, but there's even though it has so much diversity, there's so much room for more and improvement in that and and the way to do that, like I said earlier, is building the soil and really taking care of the soil and nature pretty much does the rest from there and so we have to you know i keep keep harping on like we have to manage this stuff better, we have to think about the stuff we have to take these i mean even into consideration. And when we make decisions, like it's not really even thought about. I think erosion and compaction are two of the biggest threats we have in terms of land use. And I never hear anybody talking about compaction.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, so in thinking about the future and what's next, what what is on the agenda for ecology action in Circle Acres?
2: Yeah, we're kind of at a, a weird point because I've I've kind of completed a lot of, of the recent projects. We are starting a new, brand new trail. Restoration project along the river. So, if folks are in Austin and are familiar with Grower Park, there's a space that's called Secret Beach that used to be secret and a beach, but now it's neither. <laughs> but it's still like a nice river access point. And so, the point of that project is to sort of repair the access to the river, which has been like very badly eroded over the years, and make a trail kind of like move part of the social trail that's there to a better spot that's going to have more longevity because part of the the trail currently is eroding into the river. And then once we get that in, it's kind of like what we did with the other trail in the park, using that as access to pull out trash and bring in trees and grasses and getting community involved to help plant stuff to, to increase the diversity over time. And it's been interesting because you can look at the park at a map and you see like all these trees and stuff, but it's only a few species of trees, and a lot of them are kind of getting destroyed by vines that are out of control. So it looks very green from above, but the forest is basically getting just like wiped out for the most part. But at the same time, it's not that it's not that hard to change that trajectory back towards a a native forest by you know intentionally planting and protecting trees. And look, I, I focus a lot on grasses, but There's no funding for that. So that's just kind of what we do on the side as we do the tree planting. We're currently building a bird blind and finishing up an outdoor classroom. So we've been doing a small kids' nature club that hopefully will continue to grow and bring in more local kids and just expanding our greenhouse. I have, I think it's like, yeah, three greenhouses right now. So just constantly that's kind of my background so i'm just constantly pumping out plants and uh, it's very convenient because we you know have plenty of spaces to plant them and so give something for volunteers to do and it's a great way to reintroduce diversity like a lot of the stuff i grow you can't find in nurseries and they're very important species for the native ecology and should be here so perfect
0: well that's really cool and then um I think we could probably do a whole nother episode on just the variety of fungus and mushrooms you're growing out there to repopulate as well because they're beautiful. But yeah. what can our community do for your project? And then kind of as a follow-up, because I think one of the things that I'm most interested in where do we go to learn a little bit more about some of the terminologies and issues that you're you're working on?
2: In terms of helping us, I mean, we really could use sustainers, like monthly sustainers for the preserve. It's pretty expensive to keep the space open and free, like insurance. Like last year, we had the the ice storm, and we had to spend thousands of dollars on removing tree limbs. So that's one. But I think really more in terms of like helping us, people... What I like to see is people getting more involved in the green spaces around them. I think there's a lot of times this assumption that somebody's taking care of them, uh, when in fact, for the most part, nobody's taking care of them. And so, one of the things we've done with our watershed cleanup, we've gone into some of these tributaries that have had trash building up for 30, 40 years, and just cleaning them up. You know, sometimes it takes two years just to do a small stretch, but then those places start getting used by folks just to spend time in nature and it's much better for wildlife. Like there's one near me where we spent about two years cleaning up trash and it it had such a huge impact on the mosquito population. Like it used to be horrible because every piece of plastic is a breeding ground for mosquitoes. And so just taking that out has helped the creek flow. And so having people thinking about that more, how they can get involved in being active stewards and I think would be beneficial as a whole. And then your other question was how do you learn more?
0: Yeah, where can we learn more about, you know, because I would also assume that a green space that is unmanaged is probably a better space than not? Like how do how do we know what to do, where to focus? Where do we learn that?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. I mean, I, I kind of think of it like agriculture. It's a practice. So, you know, you have to really practice at it to learn, and you'll probably make mistakes. But like my biggest tool is observation. And so really observing land before you start to do anything and then observing land as you manage it. And yeah, I think in some some instances, like leaving the space wild makes a lot of sense. But as humans, we have this unique ability to observe and learn and understand and we have opposable thumbs. And so we can actually improve the environment if we do things properly. And so I also encourage people are learning to do that more. And I, I think really the only way to do that is through practicing it. And there, there's also YouTube University, which is pretty helpful for learning from other people.
0: The the blessing of our age and the curse at the same time, right? So thank you so much for all that you do around the Circle Acres area, of Mentropolis, the green space, what it provides for us, and keeping us away from certain things we shouldn't be into, which is also perfectly provided for us. So thank you for all you're doing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you all. What a cool project. I definitely just learned some things from Eric about how we should be interacting with our green spaces. Super helpful. To learn more about Circle Acres Nature Preserve, check out ecology-action.org.